0: If you haven't been with us this fall, uh, what we've been doing is working our way through the New Testament letter to uh, the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to use one of the pew Bibles uh, in the rack in front of you. The reason that we uh, are working our way through Ephesians this fall is because back in September uh, at our congregational meeting, we uh, announced, we shared with you uh, a new vision statement, a new mission statement as well as values. And what we highlighted was that um, all of that stuff, all that content is rooted in the book of uh, Ephesians. Ephesians was really um, the scripture. That helped shape my imagination along with the elders and other key leaders uh, as we sought to um, discern together how God is leading us into the future. And so uh, we decided that we would go through Ephesians to kind of flesh some of that out this fall. And we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter five of this letter uh, this morning. Um, a, A big theme of Ephesians is how God is at work in this world to bring all things under the unity of Jesus. In other words, uh, God's big project in the world, what he's up to is he's seeking to make all things new. He's seeking to restore, to renew and redeem all that has been broken by the fall and the entrance of sin into the world. Something else uh, in light of that that we've seen is that the church, God's people, uh, have a central role to play in that mission. Uh, in fact, the church is made up, we've seen, um, from, uh, made up of people who have diverse stories and backgrounds. And what God has done, what he, what he seeks to do in this world is weave together these people from diverse backgrounds and make them one. So that they might be a reflection of what God is doing through Jesus in the world. Uh, last week, Pastor Israel preached on um, the latter part of chapter four. Uh, and he had a hard uh task. I was kind of enjoying the fact that I didn't have to preach that passage because it was a passage with a lot of do's and don'ts. But then I looked ahead and realized. Wow, my passage is just as difficult this week, so Israel, I guess I didn't get off after all. So what I want to do is uh, read the passage for us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, but we're only going to focus on the first two verses this morning. Uh, And let me give you context where we're going the remainder of December. So we're actually going to take a break from Ephesians after this week. Uh, We're going to do a couple Advent-themed sermons, and then we will return to Ephesians um, in the new year. Uh, So let me read the passage and then I'll kind of outline for you a little bit of uh, how we're going to break this chapter up in uh, the upcoming sermons in Ephesians this morning and then in the new year. And you'll notice uh, in this passage that there's hard stuff here. It's intense in places. And so um, I decided that to cover all of this in one week was far too much. That's why we're going to break this up. Paul writes this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. and for everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's ask God's help as we begin to navigate this chapter together. Holy Spirit, you are present with us. We know that on the basis of the word. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts now, We pray that you would draw us into the story of God, draw us into the truth of the word, that we might see its relevancy for our lives, and that we might actually be changed by it. Holy Spirit, we do not want this to be a meaningless activity. I don't want this morning to just be a guy who is up here giving a talk. We pray that you would make it so much more, transform us, change us for our good and your glory. And we trust that you know where each and every one of us is this morning, whether in this moment we find ourselves believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe, whether we are happy, sad, tired, uh, feeling especially alive. You know us. Come and pursue us and bring the word to bear so that we might be changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This Advent, I'm reading an Advent devotional. Uh, written by a theologian named Dante Stewart. Uh, Dante Stewart is currently a seminary student, um, but several years ago, he graduated from uh, the University of Clemson, where he played on the football team. And he tells a story uh, at some point in his career at Clemson, and he says this, I'll never forget walking into my coach's office after one practice. I just finished a good day on the field, he says, and I was satisfied. With confidence, I expected a session of praise. Then he spoke. Stu, the guys are telling me you've been slipping lately. You've been uninvolved. Why are you going through the motions? My heart sank. Though I didn't admit it at the time, he was right. I had become over-familiar with my position, and I was losing the wonder of being committed to the game. As any good coach would do, he challenged me to evaluate myself and try again. He issued an invitation to be someone different. He issued an invitation to be someone different. As we come to Ephesians 5, um, you heard, as I read this passage, that there are many hard things in this passage. And what I mean by that is they're specifically hard coming from out of the culture in which we find ourselves. Because much of what we heard in this chapter, those things that the Apostle Paul is calling us away from and out of, are things that are cherished and valued and practiced in our culture. And I wonder what our initial reaction or response is to that. Uh, does it make you feel uncomfortable, maybe? Uh, because we are so used to, uh, in our culture, uh, hearing the message of you do you, right? You do you. You express yourself regardless of what that means. And the Bible comes at us with a very different message. And you, you surely picked up on that some here, even in. These verses. But maybe I want to flip the script a little bit. I want to flip how you might be thinking about this. Rather than, than coming to this with, with dread and, um, you know, this uh, maybe feeling you have of, oh, it's so hard to submit to an authority outside of myself. What if what's happening here is that God is issuing an invitation to you, to us, to be someone different? Because that's... that is what he's doing in this letter to the Ephesians. We've heard a lot in recent weeks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And that makes sense in the context of this letter where we learn that one of the the main priorities of God in this world is to create the church, to create his people, woven together, people from diverse stories and backgrounds who would reflect him to the world, who would actually be the very presence of Jesus to the world, And what are some of the, the ways in which that church, the people of God, are described? Well, a primary way in Ephesians, especially in chapter 2, is a new humanity, a new race. And so it is definitely the case that this morning and throughout this series on Ephesians, that God is issuing an invitation to you to be someone different, to put off the old self and to put on the new. And specifically, as we come to chapter 5, the invitation is to be imitators of God. To be imitators of God. What do you think of when you hear that? What do you feel? It's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? Maybe something that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. What does it mean? What does it look like for us to be imitators of God? Because... It's probably the case that we're familiar enough with Scripture to know that God is distinct from us. He's he radically different, right? And that's that's appropriate. That's true. But there's also this sense biblically that we are made in the image of God, and as those made in His image, we are made to imitate Him, to reflect Him in the world. You've you heard um, if you've been tracking with us tracking with us in this series, um, this term walk. Paul uses it a lot in this letter, and this really is the the larger context for the section that we come to in chapter 5, because if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the big picture structure of Ephesians, that the first three chapters, Paul does a lot of of teaching on doctrine, on theology, on here's who God is and here's what he's done for you, and then there's this transition as we move to chapter 4 in the final three chapters of Okay, now let's talk about what it looks like to practically live all of that out. And so the very first verse of that transition, chapter four, verse one, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Later on in chapter four, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Back in chapter two, verse 10, he talked about walking in good deeds. And as we see here in chapter 5, there are three commands to walk. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. This morning, we're going to focus on walk in love, and then after the new year, we'll come back to chapter 5, and in uh, two separate weeks, we'll consider walk in, love, or walk in light and walk in wisdom. So if you're wondering, if you're asking yourself that question, which we are asking this morning, what does it look like to imitate God? What is it, how does that practically get fleshed out? Well, according to Paul here in Ephesians, it's walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. So let's talk about walk in love this morning. And I, I want to get at this by um, considering two different things about love. First, the experience of love and then the ethic of love, all right? The experience of love and the ethic of love. Let's start with the experience of love. This, th- these two verses at the beginning of chapter 5, in the same way that verse 1 of chapter 4 was a transition, these two verses represent a transition as well. Because what's going to follow, uh, as you heard from me reading it, is basically a call to holy living, a, a-, a call to-, to distinct living, a-, a-, a call to live as God's people in the world. But we can't just jump into verse 3 without really focusing on the first two verses here and seeing how they frame the context for the rest of this chapter. So let me read just these two verses again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what this means is that what is to follow, again, we're not going to focus on those verses this morning, but what follows is basically Paul saying, here's what the way of love looks like fleshed out. Here's what it looks like to actually have love define and mark your life in tangible, practical ways in the culture in which you live. But he he really roots the Ephesians and uh, the Ephesians and us in the experience of love first. Notice what he says. He 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 gives the command: be imitators of God. But that what he says next is so key. As beloved children, Paul doesn't just stop with be imitators of God. Go 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 do this morally. He doesn't stop with the moral of it or the ethic of it. He grounds it in the experience of love. He he grounds it in identity. And then again, verse 2, walk in love as what? Paul doesn't stop there. What does he say next? What does he say next? It's in the, the passage. What does he say next? As Christ loved us. Now, this is not unusual for Paul. It's not unusual for the Bible. Um, There's this constant theme throughout Scripture of the commands of God being grounded in what God has done for us. And this is really important for us to recognize. um, Because I wonder, as you sit here this morning, I wonder what your experience of church, your experience of the Bible has been. I wonder if you would describe the essence of Christianity as simply a bunch of do's and don'ts. That Your experience of the Christian faith is simply rules, regulations, commands. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, as we find here in this passage, there are commands in Scripture. There are instructions in Scripture. There are rules, so to speak, for lack of a better word. But what I want you to see is that that is not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is what God has done for us. And it's what God has done for us that is the fuel, the power for us to lean into or live out those commands that were given in Scripture. And so I want to ask you this. Do you think of yourself as one who is beloved by God? Seriously, I, w- I want you to ponder this. I want you to think about it. And, and I don't want you to be, I- I'm not asking you to, for this one to call out the answer aloud, but even within yourself, I-, I-, I want you to be careful before you answer too quickly because I don't want you, especially if you um, have grown up in the church and you-, you-, you know what the right answer is, I don't want you to just simply be so quick and say, oh yeah, I, I-, I have this real sense that God loves me. Do you? Do you have a strong sense of God's love for you? Let me ask it this way. Is what defined you more than anything else, is it the love of God displayed for you in Jesus? Because that's that's where Paul's going here. Paul Paul wants to talk about identity first. He wants to talk about our sense of who we are. He's going to get into uh, all of the hard things about the do's and don'ts yet again. But he's giving this a context because what he wants us to see is that all of these ways in which he's calling us to live are actually reflections of what it means to be loved by God and to have a deep sense that we are his children. Do you have a strong sense that you are loved by God, that you are his child? This Changes everything one way or another, I wonder you know as we do look ahead in this text at some of these behaviors that Paul specifically names, and in future weeks we 'll actually talk specifically about what is what he means by some of these, but sexual immorality covetousness foolish filthy foolish talk, crude joking i can 't help but to think about how often we give ourselves to these kinds of behaviors because we feel unloved in life. Because we feel... Now, there are other reasons, um, certainly, but I, I, I do think that one of the driving reasons that we give ourselves to the kinds of behaviors that are outlined here is because we feel unloved. And what this means is that we're, we're, we're looking for love. Love. We're looking for love. We're we're looking to, um, in in our own way, through our own effort, through our own devices, to um, increase our sense of who we are, to justify our existence, to, to, to give ourselves over to these things so that we might just simply feel better about who we are. What is the solution for that? The solution is to come to recognize the deep, and strong and powerful love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Because that is meant to define your sense of who you are. It's meant to define your identity more than anything else we might look to in life. Paul wants us to have that experience of love. And so what this means is that in the Bible, identity and and character transformation comes before behavior modification. And and this is where, um, unfortunately, um, throughout church history, uh, different churches, people, whatever, have gone off the rails because we reverse the order. We think that Christianity is primarily about behavior modification, but that's not the case. And we we see it here, uh, not just in chapter 5, but throughout this letter of how Paul so carefully is framing the argument. He's rooting it in identity. He's rooting it in character transformation. And it's a person who is changed by Jesus, who's in the process of being changed by Jesus, who reflects the kind of changed behaviors that Paul outlines here. We are loved by God. This is meant to be the lens through which we view the rest of this chapter. So it's not so much about Doing right behaviors versus wrong behaviors. Again, I'm not minimizing Paul's challenge, the the challenge and call that he issues here. But the real question is this, what kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person are you becoming? I I know in my own life, I prefer to just focus on, all right, tell me what I'm supposed to do. It, It just seems easier, doesn't it? even though when I actually go to do it, it's really hard to do whatever it might be. But I, I just think to myself, okay, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And, and that's how we approach our Christian faith a lot. Okay, God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. But guess what? We have, we have no power apart from the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in our lives to actually do the things that he calls us to do. The question is, what kind of person are you becoming? And I get it. That's a scary question to ask regularly. Because if you are a person who is asking that question in your life, what that means is that you are regularly going below the surface of your life. You are willing to not just simply be superficial. You're willing to do the hard work of processing your heart and what's there and what's in your life. You're willing to be accountable to others in community. In some cases, you're willing to Uh, see a therapist, to get spiritual counseling, to help you through this process. But we so many times in our lives avoid those things because it's way too scary. It's way too scary to be honest and to be serious about what's below the surface. What kind of person are you becoming? Christianity is not just simply some behavioral management program. Christianity is much bigger than that. Christianity is about personal transformation. It's about character transformation. Behavior modification should not be central to our discipleship. What should be central to our discipleship is this leaning into the imitation of God. In other words, it's worship. It's worship of who God is. It's being in all of his character And wanting more than anything else to reflect that, knowing that our reflection of God is the good life, is the good life. It's difficult because I think two or three weeks ago, I was talking about this in another sermon. We are so resistant to authority. We're so resistant to voices outside of ourselves telling us how to live. And the same comes, we we can't be naive about this. As we come to scripture, that's in us from our culture. uh, Again, I talked about this a few weeks ago. It's in us from our culture, but it's also in us just from our sinful nature. We don't want to be told how to live. We want to think that we're wise enough, that we're good enough to figure it out on our own. And so a question we can ask here is this. Do you believe that God's vision of the good life is really the good life? Do you believe that God's vision of the good life is really the good life? Like as you read what's here in Ephesians 5, do you believe that, okay, I don't understand all of this, but God is trustworthy. God made the world. He knows how it's supposed to work best. And so this is the good life, refraining from these behaviors and practicing other behaviors, which flows from a changed identity because of who Jesus is and what he's done. How has God's love been expressed? Verse two, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How, how can we bring ourselves to trust God? How can we really believe that his vision of the good life is really the good life? He was willing to give himself up for us in the person of Christ. Now, try to wrap your minds around this. Uh, Try to allow this to sink into your hearts. God is all-knowing, okay? So he knows you inside and out. Even in those moments where you refuse to go below the surface, God knows what's below the surface. He knows everything about your present. He knows everything about your past. He knows you inside and out, and yet he still chooses to pursue you. Like, that's what I mean. Do you believe, that, that's another way of asking the question, do you really believe you are loved by God? Not theoretically, but like in reality, like given your story, given what's going on in your life, do you believe that God pursues you? Not the person next to you, God is pursuing them, but do you believe that God is in pursuit of you? Even when you don't love yourself, Even when you despise yourself, even when you're confused about where you are with God, do you believe that he is in pursuit of you? And he's proven that by giving Jesus for you. And so before we transition into the ethic of love, we have to just rest in the experience of love. What might it look like for us to begin in new and fresh and different ways to experience in actuality, in reality, the love of God displayed in Jesus? What might change for you? How might you view yourself differently? Let's talk about the ethic of love. Paul says, Walk in love, doesn't he? Walk in love. I think it would be helpful here to do a little bit of a historical context about the city of Ephesus. We've done some of this um, throughout the series, but but I think it will really maybe help you to make sense of what comes after these two verses. So Ephesus was a a lead in in the Roman Empire in ancient times. It was a a leading center of commerce and culture. Um, It was large. Uh, the population probably during Paul's day was somewhere around 300,000, which for a city in the Roman Empire was, was big. Uh, it was one of the most wealthy cities in the Roman Empire and one of the most powerful as well. Uh, there was a great harbor at Ephesus. And as you can imagine, what this meant was that there were constantly ships that were bringing wealth from all over the known world into Ephesus. Ephesus. And so you can't help but to wonder about maybe some of the pride that crept into the way of life uh, among the Ephesians there. Also, uh, we made reference to this a few weeks ago, Uh, the Temple of Artemis, also sometimes referred to as Diana, um, was located in Ephesus. It was known to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Let me tell you a little bit about Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. And she was worshiped by having intercourse with a temple prostitute, male or female. One worship ritual involved a public parade of the idols down to the river to dip them in the water to restore the virginity of the goddess, The goddess then regathering back at the temple to engage in, we'll just say, um, pretty explicit behaviors involving thousands of temple prostitutes. Maybe this helps to give you a little bit of an idea about the sexual immorality that Paul has in mind here as he writes this letter. The temple was a massive, elaborate structure. There there were thousands of people from all over uh, who would come to worship there, to serve the the false god Artemis, uh, and collections of of great uh, works of art would be stored there. Not only that, Ephesus Um, through um, different circumstances, became eventually a safe haven for criminals. So crime was a significant problem in Ephesus. And this had all been going on for a long time. Uh, 500 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, there was a philosopher who lived in Ephesus, and with tears in his eyes, he said this, no one could live in Ephesus without weeping over the immorality which he must see on every side. So this is the context in which Paul is writing. It's the context in which these new disciples of Jesus came out of. And you could understand the pull that they faced to go back into living the lifestyle of the culture surrounding them, of what was acceptable and yet they're being called to something else. They're being given a different vision of the good life. Here's a principle throughout Scripture. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. And if you think about this um, in your own life, maybe you've never thought about it in, through the lens of worship, but, but this is true. Like what you give yourself to, what you commit yourself to, what you center yourself on, you become like that. It, it, it shapes how you live, it shapes how you think. And so we, we've, we've talked about how our identity shapes our behavior, but it's also true that our behavior shapes our identity. And, and we need to be realistic about that. Our identity shapes our, fundamentally, our identity shapes our behavior, but our behavior also shapes our identity. And that's why you could probably point to times in your life where you gave yourself to certain behaviors, whatever they may be, and you found yourself becoming a different kind of person as a result. Greg Beale is a theologian, uh, and he says this, you are either becoming like something in the world, or you are becoming like God, because God has created humans as reflecting beings. And we must reflect something. It is intrinsic to our created nature. It's one or the other. We are reflecting beings. Who or what would you say that you are reflecting in your life? Remember how Paul begins this chapter. Be imitators of God. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of what we are centering ourselves on. Who are we becoming? Who are we worshiping? There's overlap there. And as we think about the ethic of love, what does that look like? What does it look like to actually practice love? Well, the list that Paul gives us of all of these immoral behaviors, sexual immorality, covetousness, um, uh, crude talking, those things, they're not... It's not like Paul's just deciding, okay, I just want to present a list to you of the immoral behaviors in Ephesus. He's doing it for a reason. He's doing it because these highlight what is in opposition to love. These are behaviors that do not have love in mind. What is true love according to the Bible? Well, he tells us in these two brief verses. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. True love is self-giving. It's self-giving. Love is at the heart of all reality. Uh, The Apostle John in 1 John says that God is love. We're made in God's image, called to imitate him. We're called to experience the love of God as we um, are in relationship with him but we're also called to live out that love. And what does it look like? Well, at least generally speaking, it involves the giving of self. Let me highlight for you a way in which I failed at this um, during the week. You've probably heard me say that I had a preaching uh, professor in seminary that always urged us, never tell stories in which you are the hero. So the stories that I personal stories I tell all um, point out my flaws. I think I've been influenced by... That principle. But anyhow, um, this past week, uh, my wife Katie uh, one morning asked if at some point during the day we could talk for a few minutes because she wanted help processing something. Um, so I, I said, I, we, I'm eating lunch at home today, so why don't we talk for a little bit um, over lunch? And so we did. And ironically, she began to uh, share with me a way in which she was struggling to love. And I'm listening to this, um, and guess what? I start to become anxious about what she's sharing with me. I, I, I feel like it's becoming my problem. And so, guess what? I started to do. Bad mistake. Tried to solve it for her. Not a good idea. I tried to solve it for her, uh, and so I—I I, I, I mean, basically, what I did is I went into pastor mode. And there, there are helpful ways for me to shepherd my wife, and there are unhelpful ways. And this, this when I go into pastor mode, it's an unhelpful way. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to solve this for her. But what I realized, not in the moment, uh, and actually it was kind of awkward because I had no sense that I had done anything wrong. I thought we were good. She had to leave abruptly to go to an appointment. And it was later that night that she brought this up to me. And my initial reaction is like, what are you talking about? Like, you were fine the rest of the day. couldn't have been that bad. And then the Holy Spirit went to work on me. And what I realized was this. The reason that I went into um, solution mode with her was not out of love for her. It was out of love for myself. Because it basically came down to this. Like, I want this to go away so I don't have to help her Deal with this because it's causing me stress, and I have enough to deal. I mean, this sounds harsh, but I'm just trying to be transparent with you. And it doesn't matter what you say; you know what it's like in different ways in your own life. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know about yourself. Um, but I realize this: that I, I'm pretending to love. You know, I, I'm trying to be present, but and, and and trying to ask good questions, but really. The reason that I'm trying to solve this is so that it will go away so I don't have to deal with it. That is not self-giving love. That is love for myself. That is about protection of myself. And what we are called to, biblically, is a love that reflects the love that God has for us displayed in Christ. Christ gave himself up for us. And so I think it is... Uh, helpful for us to think about this. What would it look like for us to truly begin to love the people around us? Uh, Like, like Let's begin in the church. Um, People that you would maybe say are hard to love, or people who are different from you, that initially there's not much you share in common, or maybe it's just simply that you tend to be a more private person, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but there's something wrong with it if it turns into a lifestyle of just simply putting up walls of protection, not being in real genuine relationship and community with people where you're actually following Jesus with others. That's where it becomes a problem. But what would it look like for you to practice true self-giving love? And let me take us back to where we started. It has to begin with having a regular experience of God's love for you. That's where the power is, brothers and sisters. That's where the power is. As as Katie pointed out, my my sin, um, my unhelpful way of of approaching her. Like I said, it, initially, like, uh, I mean, I'll just be fully honest. We went to bed. We went to bed upset with each other that night. Uh, that's a whole. That's a premarital counseling session of, about not talking about things like that before you go to bed. But that's another sermon. Um, but. We went to bed upset, and it was my fault. Because as she brought this to me, I, I, my self-protective walls went up. It was like, n- no, no. I, I, I'm, I did everything right. I'm good. Don't bring this. T- and the Holy Spirit had to go to work. And how did the Holy Spirit go to work? By grounding me in an experience of God's love. Realizing that this is, this is even though I don't want to admit it, I have to go below the service. And this is true this is true. This is my sin. Here's how I sinned against my wife. And then almost 24 hours later, I came home from a meeting Friday evening and uh, brought this up with her and finally was able to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did not listen well to you, that I approached you in this way. But what was it for me? Now Now I feel like I'm starting to turn into the hero. I don't intend that. It's not what I'm intending. But what was the change for me? It was remembering that in the midst of my sin, in the midst of all of my flaws, God loves me. And how do I know that? He sent Jesus for me. And that's where the power comes to then give ourselves to others. So I wonder what it would look like in our, in our families, but also in our church family, for us to begin to give ourselves over to a love that requires sacrifice a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the vision of the good life. Like, I think about my personal story that I just shared. Like, it wasn't fun for me to go through that process. It it was painful for me. It's never fun to admit that I am wrong, right? That's not fun. But freedom is what God desires for us. And maybe that's the irony here. Maybe that's the surprise that you need to see here in Ephesians chapter 5. That God calls you away from certain behaviors and into certain behaviors because he actually wants you to be free. He wants you to be uh, in the midst of his vision of the good life. What is hard is usually what is good a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we learn to make sacrifices for one another, we actually, it's another way that we uh, gain a deeper experience of God's love, but also allow others to experience uh, the depths of God's love because they see Jesus in us. Now, I wonder what it would look like for us to practice self-giving love to those outside the church what might that look like? I, I wonder if we would be a little less quick to offer judgment, right? Not, not that we are saying that um, sin is not a reality in our culture. Hopefully you've heard me say, say that and you'll continue to hear me say that. But I wonder if we'll be less quick to judge because we are deeply aware of our own sin, and we realize the only thing that sets us apart from those outside of the church who do not believe and walk in the way of Jesus is what? Is an experience of God's love for us in Jesus, not, what we've, not how we've been able to get ourselves together. And so self-giving love requires us to sacrifice. Maybe to sacrifice by being less quick to judge, but also by being willing to enter into the stories of people. And this is where we conclude. We don't like to get caught up in other people's stuff. I mean, that was kind of what was at play in my story with Katie. Like, it was almost like, I have my own stuff, I just don't have the capacity to enter into your stuff, so let me fix it so your stuff goes away at least for now and I can focus on my stuff. That is not the way of Jesus. That's not self-giving love. As we have a real experience of God's love for us displayed in Jesus, guess what begins to happen? We find ourselves with a greater capacity to enter into the stories of other people. We find ourselves with uh, a greater capacity to connect to uh, community, now bring it back to to, uh, church life. You know, because I think that sometimes we We simply don't live in community because we tell ourselves we don't have the capacity. And what that means is I don't feel like loving, right? I don't feel like loving. I don't feel like sacrificing. And the, the way to get beyond that is to not beat yourself up. It's not to dwell on necessarily what you're not doing. It's to bask in the love that God has for you, in the sacrifice that he made for you in Jesus, and so here we are. Advent season. It's not too too late to lean into the Advent season. Um, sometimes this happens to me, where like I, I start off strong. Maybe the first week of Advent. You know what this is like. Um, reading a devotional, being in scripture, prayer, and then I miss a day or two, and then I tell myself, well, the whole month is screwed up now, so there's no sense in going back. I'll wait. Oh, wait, January 1st, that's a new start. I'll try again then. It's never too late. It's never too late. And it's not about ritual. It's not about practices necessarily. It's about positioning yourself in relationship to God so that you might regularly experience his love For you. And so, as in this Advent season, as we practice waiting, waiting on God's presence, I just encourage you to be in God's presence, to simply be in His presence, to receive His love, to begin the process of doing the hard work of going below the surface, to be honest about your sin, but to not stay there, to quickly turn. To the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be free, and so that you might be loved as a son or daughter of the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Father, the gospel is so hard for us, it's so hard because we want control. We want to be able to rescue ourselves. We want to be able to change ourselves, but we just can't. But I pray that you would continue to bring us to the point where we are willing to accept that and to actually find freedom in that. We thank you so much for your deep and abiding love that you have for your people. Give us a deeper, a fuller experience of that in such a way that we're regularly being changed change to be able to reflect this love to those around us. I pray for those who have sat through this message that maybe aren't sure if they know you or they know that they don't know you. I pray that you would tug on their hearts, that you would help them to see that there's nowhere else that they can go to experience the love that they're looking for in life. I pray that you would bring clarity to their minds and the hearts that the gospel is true. And for those of us who already believe, I actually pray the same thing, that you would continue to bring clarity to our minds and our hearts. And finally, I pray that the remainder of this Advent season would be meaningful. I pray that even if it's in small ways, at the end of the month, we would be able to look back and to see how we grew in our comprehension and understanding of your love and maybe even one or two practical ways or areas of our lives in which we were able to give of ourselves more to others. We trust that you are able to do this because as your people, we have the Holy Spirit. Empower us to be your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.